This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Black Cat. We are talking about Caterpillar today. Kind of a black day. Uh, certainly, if you were trying to be bullish on this name, it's down about 6.7%. Not in the black. <laughs> no. Very much in the red. Well, yeah, certainly the share price. The down share about 6.7%. Uh, tumbling after disappointing analysts who expected a bit of a boost for its 2018 outlook. Let's get into it with our team. Joe Doe is metals and mining reporter at Bloomberg News. Joining us along with uh, Karen Eubelhart. She's senior industrials analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, both in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Joe, let me start with you. So, Caterpillar, what happened? Well, I, I think to, to give uh, some credit over here to to Karen, uh, who who said all before right, forget all it, of you're this, done. No. Listen, uh, <laughs> you know, no matter what these guys do, it almost seems like the market's not going to like it. And so, when they came out with their earnings today, they showed slightly higher on revenue, slightly higher on higher on EPS. But of course, they didn't raise their outlook for 2018. Their share buybacks aren't as big as everyone expected, and so they're taking quite a hit. And I spoke to the CFO after their earnings call and said, well, nobody asked you directly, why are you getting penalized so much in the market today, despite saying that things are pretty good at Caterpillar? And he admitted, listen, there is macroeconomic uncertainty out there, and the the market is nervous. And while we're not being impacted directly by the things that are out there, we believe that maybe indirectly this might be the case of why we're getting swallowed up in all of it. But he also said you can't grow that fast forever. Yeah, and he did say – really amazing comment. Yeah, and and I said – Yeah, I mean, you said it, right? He said, you just can't grow that fast forever and pointed out when you were looking quarter quarter of a quarter for third quarter, we only grew 18% margins uh, or sales uh, versus quarter of a quarter. Last third quarter was 25% and and continued to tell me on the call 2017 was very good. And so, you know, it's hard to build off that. I just got to say, I kind of love the honesty, but, you know, Karen, I am thinking that the PR consultants were like behind him or something saying, no, don't say that. High watermark. Remember high watermark? (laughs) The the former CFO said high watermark. What's going on with Caterpillar? We have been talking about Cat for many years. Uh, Some of the bad acquisitions, the money they put out for Bucyrus and so on and so forth, the the big kind of being all in on mining. Um, um, I don't know. Do you think investors have it wrong? And these in in the cyclical group, they always uh, anticipate, and and uh, this is more than I would have thought for sure. Um, Cat has some very late cycle businesses, like mining, like some of the energy related stuff. Um, you know. That's 40% of the company, and it's really just kind of starting to get kicking. What probably will slow is construction. Um, And the other thing, margins are extraordinary, and there's still more to go. Um, But... They needed to raise and need. I think if they raised, they still would have been down if they didn't, you know, didn't raise enough. It's just that kind of market. People are very worried about the tariffs. It's having a it is having an increasingly big impact on on cost. Uh, Not everybody can get price increases to offset. Mm -hmm. You know, Europe is definitely showing slower signs, although Kat didn't see it. But some companies did see it. So there's just nervousness, you know. And and so, Joe, Karen rightly mentioned tariffs, rightly mentioned this idea that this feels like a broader story. Take us inside the call. Like, what what were the questions like in the in those contexts? Yeah, I mean, I think they were just trying to get someone to admit at Caterpillar that 
you can't just look at Caterpillar in a vacuum. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, or fortunately, however you bet the company, um, this is an this is an executive group now that is relatively new, two years, and they're really sticking by their guns into the book. And they they said back in their investor conference last September, here's what we expect in terms of revenue, and we're doing all these you know restylings within the company, and. They continue to point out, listen, our backlogs, we're not getting like double order backlogs like we did in the last time that we had a downturn in 2012. Unfortunately, everybody kind of already understood that. And just kind of reiterating this points doesn't really seem to help the case, at least when it comes to trading on the stock. Karen, was there anything in the earnings release that you didn't get answered? Uh, you know, it's funny. Um, not that it matters at all, but there was a uh, in their in their um, guidance, it really wasn't a raise because there was a 16 cent tax benefit that nobody even talked about. Because given with the stock down this much, it kind of doesn't matter really. Yeah. Um, but that was that was uh, one question um, I think, and uh, you know. I guess China they answered. And, and then the other question, and I think this was a good question, they kept a dollar, a dollar spread on the earnings with one quarter left. Now, if you do the math, they are going to probably get to the high end of that. Yeah. Um, but, and you said, that, as, as Joe said, they want to just, you know, they want to set their goal and not be adjusting it all the time. They said, look, you know, and they're right. If they had gone narrative 50 cents, people would have said, oh, my God, they lowered the high end of the range. So they couldn't win, so they kept it the same. We have about a minute left here. I like Caterpillar because they do work around the world. They play into sectors that kind of tell us what's going on in the global economy. 15 seconds, Joe. What did you get from Cat in terms of what's going on in the global economy? I think the last point, which I asked him about Terrace, the CFO afterwards, you said 100 to $200 million hit. You only announced $40 million in the first in the third quarter. So that means at least sixty million. They said, "Yeah," and I said, "So are you going to say it could be less than a hundred million?" Million? They said, "No, we're just sticking to it'll be the pretty much the very bottom end, low end of that," which tells you that they're still doing all right despite yeah. the way the market's reacting. Yeah, and a percentage of revenues, it's not that much. Karen, just quickly, fifteen seconds. What did you get from Cat about what's going on in the global economy? It looks good. Every region was growing, uh, you know, on on the top line. However, I didn't get that feel from 3M, so it kind of matters where where you are a little bit. And we didn't so. get into that, so um, you know, we'll we'll touch upon that a little bit later on because both stocks are down. And you're right, a different story when it came to 3M. Good luck moving up the All right, a little Billy Joel for your Tuesday, and very on point for our next conversation. That is with Noah Buhire, finance reporter for Bloomberg, on the phone with us from Seattle, where he lives. He's way out west, but apparently some folks down the coast from you, Noah, starting to move back east, if only a little bit. Tell us what's going on with this, you know, go west young man reversal that we're seeing. Yeah, so um, my co-author on this story, Prashant Gopal, and I wanted to take a look at what the spillover effects of California's extreme housing shortage was having on other um, other markets. And if you look at it up and down the West Coast, and this would include where I am in Seattle, you're starting to see a bit of a cooling in housing prices. But the places where it's really kicking up are a bit surprising. We're talking about places like Reno in Nevada. Uh, Las Vegas, uh, some cities in Arizona, and and Boise, um, where home prices are up about 20, almost 20% over the last year. And what's really driving it is you have this huge influx of people, largely from California, though you are seeing some some folks move in from the Seattle area um, and and, and other higher cost uh, uh, cities. 
Noah, as you guys put out, point out in your story, we've seen booms and busts before when it comes to California, right? We've seen this cycle before. Is there something different, though, more significant in terms of people leaving the state? Yeah, I mean we're we're seeing we're seeing a large influx. We're seeing these these dramatic uh, increases in, in in prices. Uh, the other dimension of this, which is really interesting, uh, are, are the politics. Um, you know, uh, a lot of the folks that I spoke with on the ground in Boise, um, they they were. Uh, truth be told, across the political spectrum, I mean, you had some some folks who self-identified as liberal, and they found themselves in a state that uh, you know elected Trump uh, two to two to one over Clinton. Uh, but you also have a lot of conservative Californians who are setting down roots in Boise and and the suburbs around it, and they told me that you know the move was was something that they liked. They were around uh, more conservatives. They they felt that politics in California had drifted too far to the left. And in addition to, to enjoying a lower cost of living in Idaho, uh, they were also, you know, around their people. <laughs> and so does this show any signs of, of slowing down? Because at what point does Boise or some of its uh, other echo boom uh, brethren sort of catch up to the extent that people say, well, it, it's sort of over. It's not so affordable anymore. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And there are a couple of dimensions to that. So one thing to keep in mind is the fact that average or, excuse me, median home prices in uh, Ada County, where Boise is, are, are still about half of the median home price in California. Wow. So we're talking a difference between roughly $300,000 and $600,000. So that's a big deal. Um, but there are other factors at play, obviously. Um, you know, home prices go up almost 20%. Well, median wages are not going up by 20% in a year. So what really matters are things like mortgage rates um, and what people are able to earn when they move to Boise. Is that If they're moving to retire, it's obviously less of a question. Um, or if they're, they own their home in California and are able to buy outright in Boise, it's less of a question. Um, but, but those are important factors in, in this story as well. Well, it's interesting, too, as you say, that you know when you sell a property in California, California, then you go to something like Boise or uh, another place where it's a lot less expensive to live and buy a home, you're playing maybe with a little bit of funny money. So, you know, it's easier to maybe drive up the price of a home. Yeah, I mean, that certainly seems to be going on somewhat here. The, the CEO of Redfin, the, um, the real estate um, company, uh, you know, told, his, his phrasing was, you know, Californians are using monopoly money, basically. Um, I, what I saw on the ground was actually interesting is you, you see some home builders that are actually just catering to the tastes of, of these folks. I, I toured a, um, a new development where, you know, there were uh, modern homes with floor-to-ceiling glass, and some of them even had wine walls, basically, to store your your um, your wine collection. And, you know, that's that's a situation where uh, developers are actually catering directly to these uh, these new arrivals. They're not so much right. building for the folks in, in Boise. Great stuff. Noah, always good to get your perspective uh, from out west. We'll keep an eye on this uh, new sort of migration, Carol. And you can check out Noah's story. It's in the upcoming issue mm-hmm. of Bloomberg Business Week, already available on Bloomberg.com and on the Bloomberg Terminal. I can see clearly now the rain is gone. Oh, let's 
see how clearly he can uh, look at the markets and see ahead in terms of what might be uh, down the road. Aaron Cannon is back with us, co-founder, CEO of Clear Harbor Asset Management. Over $600 million in assets under management uh, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. And who knew he is on the board of the Atlantic Salmon Federation? <laughs> I was just noticing that. How what is that, that about? It's a wonderful organization. Our goal is to preserve wild uh, runs of Atlantic salmon, which travel from Canada to Greenland and back. And uh, unlike Pacific salmon, they uh, they lay their eggs in rivers and they don't die after doing that. And uh, it's a wonderful species. And when they're healthy, the environment's usually healthy. So I'm part of a wonderful organization there. Are they healthy? Well, there are populations that are healthy, but generally the trend has been downward. And mm. um, we have made many challenges uh, <laughs> on that front, the acidification of the oceans, aquaculture, um, regulations that are not friendly to, to rivers and uh, the species that we're trying to protect, the salmon. Are you a climate change believer then? Well, I'm a believer in science, and science suggests that the climate is certainly changing and warming and that we're most likely playing a, a critical uh, element and role in, in that, that process. So, yes, I guess I'm, uh, I'm not a denier. <laughs> <laughs> no, I am curious because it's, like, amazing. Well, and that, I mean, that, that's a nice segue into a, a broader conversation about, you know, how we think about geopolitics, mm-hmm. geoeconomics within a portfolio. And, you know, you take a very global view uh, well beyond the Atlantic uh, in terms of your portfolio. So during a time when... Every day, every hour, it seems, you know, we're getting headlines today from John Bolton and Russia talking about another meeting between President Trump and President Putin. We obviously have everything that's been going on in Saudi Arabia. We've got midterm elections coming up uh, two weeks from today. How do you feather all that in to a cogent investment thesis? Well, it's a great question and and something that's challenging to do. Uh, We try to remove some of the noise from what's happening. Um, you know, the market's down today, and some can attribute that to geopolitical uncertainty, uh, to the Khashoggi murder, to uh, the, the fact that Brexit is still a big question mark, to Merkel's decline or a possible loss of power in the near future in Germany after some of the regional elections uh, there, or the Italian woes. But uh, a lot of it is from, I think, a market perspective uh, outside of Brexit, of course, and the currency and, and exports and imports and those considerations has been historically proven to be noise in the long run, not in the short run. Uh, the Mexican peso crisis was, was, a, was, a, was maybe a bit of a caveat to that. But even 9-11 uh, was ultimately a short-term uh, 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 moment in the market that was, wasn't pleasant to envision, but... Uh, Certainly, uh, we overcame that. At the end of the day, we've had you know 23 corrections of 5% or more in the market since March of 2009. And I would argue that since September 20th, when the S&P 500 peaked, we uh, have seen global growth trends decline. Uh, even the earnings uh, of this quarter have been strong, but expectations, and we know the market's a discounting mechanism, expectations have have generally been uh, trending a bit lower on on the future trend of earnings growth. And I think that's really what we're seeing in the market. We're also seeing a a Fed that's tightening uh, in the midst of of a global slowdown. That's somewhat unheard of for the Fed to tighten in the midst of trends that seem to be downward. Now, the caveat is the U.S. trend is upward. Well, help me out here, because I feel like we talk about the economy and people say things are looking pretty good, certainly in the United States, that you look at the the statistics that are out there, that 
things do, whether it's the labor market, whether it's economic growth. Um, those things look good. You sound a little bit more tempered, if you will. Well, I think you can have a strong economy. You can have a strong labor market. You can have uh, incremental wage growth, but that doesn't necessarily, I think, compute or uh, or, or convey itself out into the form of, of better earnings. In fact, uh, higher wages, for example, can crimp margins. Right, right. Uh, so you, you have that dynamic at play. And in, in the midst of this sort of tightening trend by the Fed, and it's, and it's, a, it's a relatively dovish tightening trend, if I, could, if I could use that phrase, and that it, on average it's only been about 100 basis points a year. The last five tightening cycles have moved at about, Fed funds rate have, have moved about 250 basis points a year. So the Fed's aware of, of, of the fragility around uh, of their, their goal of maintaining inflation at bay and growth at bay. Uh, in the midst of a of a, a slightly slower growth profile than one that they would like to see, uh, but nonetheless, the Fed's tightening, and that's going to be a headwind to PE multiples, and that's really, I think, what's happening here. And so, when you think about the signal from the noise, how did the midterms play? For you? Well, it's interesting. I think if I have conventional wisdom correct, the base case is the Republicans maintain hold of the Senate, right, and the Democrats probably eke out a majority in the House. Um, I think that the interesting risk is that the media got it wrong in 2016. The pollsters got it wrong in 2016. And what if in this sort of post-Kavanaugh environment, there's a possibility that, I don't know, the polling trends change over the next uh, two weeks yeah. and, and, and somehow the Republicans eke out a majority in the House and maintain the Senate? Or conversely... Maybe uh, it shifts the other way. I saw some polling data out of Florida today that suggested that um, Governor Scott, for example, uh, is is trending in a slightly negative direction here. He's down by six points in the most recent Quinnipiac poll, and I think you reported on that earlier. Um, if that's sort of the trend nationally, although I think there's some specific uh, issues in Florida that may be uh, more idiosyncratic, then you know, could the Democrats take the Senate? My My general view is... Uh, we were in a deadlock. Republicans main, maintain the Senate. Democrats, you got a, uh, a more traditional off-year uh, presidential election uh, majority in the House. And, um, and that status quo is okay for the markets. Really good stuff. As always, Aaron Kennan, CEO at Clear Harbor Asset Management. Carol started him off with a very Tom Keen question about Atlantic Salmon. I love it. Well, I just feel like, you know, you look at some different things and you learn stuff, whether it's about the environment, the market environment, or kind of the world at large. I love it. I love it. (laughs) All right. You are listening on a Tuesday afternoon to Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Jason Kelly alongside Carol Masser, and this is Bloomberg Radio. Listen. song is going to make a little more sense uh, in a minute. You know what, Carol? Yes. One of the coolest things about our job is to get to talk to really interesting people. And Alex Rosenblatt completely fits that bill. Her new book is out today. We I know. are getting uh, one Fresh of the, the first <laughs> looks at it. The book is called Uberland, How Algorithms Are Rewriting the Rules of Work. Alex is a researcher at the Data and Society Institute here in New York City. It's her first book. She's here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Alex, set this up for us because the whole premise plus the reporting of this book is just way cool. 
Well, thank you so much. I think I started this book when I started researching Uber around 2014, when it was still the darling of the business and tech and journalism beat. And it was very promising because it offered technology that could scale entrepreneurship for the masses, you know, while society was still in the dregs of the Great Recession. And so people could have a stopgap solution, potentially, or even their own business. What I found when I started researching Uber through the lens of its drivers across more than 25 cities in the U.S. and Canada over four years is that... Wait, say that again. So So four years and over 5,000 miles you spent with Uber drivers. That's right. Let's just just put that out there. Okay, so go ahead. As well, I mean, I would spend every day online reading posts they would make to online forums where they could post screenshots and comment on their work and develop a workplace culture even though they had no workplace. And so what I was watching was that drivers actually had to comply with a lot of rules that Uber scaffolded, except they don't have hundreds of human supervisors telling drivers how to behave on the job. They have algorithmic bosses who enact the rules that Uber sets from their ride acceptance rates to dispatch policies to the prices that they earn per mile and per minute. And Uber has the power to change all of those at any given time. All right. So... What are the implications? Let's cut to the chase here. I mean, you have an intimate now look into how this works. You are an ethnographer by training. Your job is to tell us what it all means at this point. So where do we go from here? What is the Uberization of the world look like, especially as it relates to work? I think what we're looking at is a model of algorithmic management that can be potentially adopted across industries. If suddenly you can both create a technical distance between an employer and a worker and sort of sever the ties of a traditional working relationship while also standardizing how workers behave on the job and deliver your services, you've created a hack into you know an already fissured employment relationship. And that means that the traditional workplace protections and rights that we expect for workers, they don't exist anymore. You know, anti-discrimination law at work really only applies, for the most part, to employees, not independent contractors. So this is a good or bad thing? I think it can be both. I think there's trade-offs to be made. It could be that it's actually, you know, a lot of drivers see they like having an algorithmic boss, except when something goes wrong. And so I think there's a lot of ways to improve the model, to improve trust-based customer service that drivers get when something goes wrong. Because it's not just that drivers are workers. Uber's actually argued that they're, in fact, consumers of this technology, just like passengers. Right. And so all of the protests you see against Uber's working conditions, those seem irrelevant. Well, it's the ultimate actions have consequences, right? So if something goes wrong, a driver gets penalized, right? And vice versa, if a driver doesn't like a customer, right? But the algorithm just sees the black and white numbers of what we do. Like, if you ever do one of those surveys, like after a ride, I'm always like, wait a minute, I need something else. And I don't, so there's a lot of gray that maybe doesn't get taken into account that that could maybe, what, make this even better? Well, the consumer service rating system where you rate a driver from between one and five stars at the end of every trip, that actually acts as an enforcer for how drivers mm-hmm. are expected to act on the job. An algorithmic manager usually just gives you recommendations and suggestions and right. nudges, and it can intervene in your behavior in a moment's notice when you brake too harshly or accelerate too quickly. But if you don't behave in the ways that passengers expect you to, they might give you a low rating. And if your rating falls below a certain threshold, like 4.6 out of five stars, you're going to be deactivated, a technical word for fired or suspended. All right. So we only have about 45 seconds left. But in that time, tell us your favorite story from the road. What's the story that you came home and you you just said you're not going to believe what happened? You know, one of the stories I come back to often is actually Nathan, who is a Lyft driver and was considering whether 
he might be taken advantage of in similar ways to Uber drivers because the systems are so similar. And he was a hobbyist. He's, you know, he's he gives psychotherapy sessions as a social worker, <laughs> and he has these patients who have PTSD and serious uh. mental health distress. And he started driving ride hail for the emotional relief of like fairly superficial interactions with passengers. And wow. you know. That, you know, so he's not as dependent on this income as other drivers who need to support their kids. But at the same time, he felt that if he was being treated unfairly, he had like a real problem with the system and he didn't even need the money. And so I think the lesson of Nathan is that you need to ensure that there's fairness and trust. Alex Rosenblatt, very cool stuff. Researcher at Data and Society Institute. Her book, Just Out, Uberland, How Algorithms Algorithms Are Rewriting the Rules of Work. Check it out, everybody. Uberland, very interesting uh, read. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Master, Jason Kelly, right here on Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, folks, we've got about uh, seven minutes, eight minutes left in today's trading session. Time for the drive to the close. John Buckingham is with us, Chief Investment Officer at Alfrank Asset Management, editor of the Prudent Speculator Newsletter, $725 million in assets under management, with us from Laguna Beach, California. I kind of wish I was in Laguna Beach, California right now. Hey, John, I think we say that to you every time you're here because it's so beautiful. Um, This market environment, uh, you've seen a lot. You write about it. uh, You've written about a lot of market environments in your newsletter, uh, over the years. Um, I don't know. What does it remind you of? How does it feel? Well, it really feels, you know, normal to have volatility. Um, I know it's scary when you go through it, but, you know, we've been publishing our newsletter for 40 years, and I've been here for 31 years, and we've endured plenty of ups and downs. You know, two dozen times we've had declines of more than 12%. So, Every time you go through it, it, it tends to freak people out, and of course, it, it causes uh, the media to uh, find reasons for what happened. You know, that's the irony. If you look at something today like Corning's earnings, uh, you know, the headlines initially were that investors were disappointed. The stock opened down nine percent, and you know, last I checked, it was up two percent on the day. So the uh, the very short term actions don't always necessarily um, you know jive with what true long term value is. So the key when you go through periods like this is to, you know, keep the faith, uh, stay stay long-term oriented and, and you know, let things come in. And so in this sort of market, especially as we get into earnings, uh, John, what are we – what are you looking at sector-wise and maybe even some specific names? What feels good uh, right now to, to play this sort of market? <laughs> Well, what what feels good really is the things that haven't performed well. I know it sounds perverse, but you know when you have action like today with Caterpillar, 
you know, being down $10 or so uh, despite beating expectations. Um, you know, those are things that, that tend to uh, attract us, not repel us. And so um, that's kind of where I would be focusing if you have money that's on the sidelines, is things that haven't performed well, things that haven't beaten up uh, during earnings season. You know, we like to say it's a market of stocks and not a stock market. And there are plenty of stocks that are in bear markets already this year, even though the S&P 500 is actually up on the year. So Caterpillar would be a name I'd take a look at. I know if the, some of the other stocks I have to mention have bounced back a little bit today, but Goodyear Tire, yep. uh, General Motors, International Paper, Whirlpool, Manpower, these are all things that are you know down more than 20% uh, on the year. So I think there's opportunity for those who could try to take a long-term view and then take advantage of the, you know, the fluctuations. That's the beauty of the stock market. When if you don't like the prices, you don't have to sell. But on the other side of the coin, when the masses or the herd is selling, you can, uh, you know, step up to the plate and take advantage of some some bargains that are out there. Well, and I am curious, in the last uh, couple of weeks when we've seen the market downturn uh, significantly, kind of we were complacent and then all of a sudden, what, bam, down more than, what, 4 or 5% in a couple of days. Um, I'm assuming it sounds like you were buying then. What what specifically? You just mentioned a bunch of names, but I'm just curious what have been among your most recent buys. Well, to be candid, you know, we've been pretty much fully invested, um, you know, all along for 40-some-odd years. And, you know, ironically, you know, our newsletter is the top performer over those 40 years because we are trying to outguess the market movement. So, um, I can't tell you what you know little positions we've we've added to here and there because we're still working on on some of those. Right. But, you know we ride through the downturns and the upturns and and the important thing for investors to remember is that you know five percent declines. You know those are normal. They happen on average more than twice a year. Seven and a half percent declines happen every point six years. Ten percent declines happen every point nine years. So I get that volatility is scary, um, and of course we live in a sensationalistic world where it gets you know trumpeted in the headlines. Um, but volatility is very much normal. These are not unusual occurrences, and for long-term investors, you, these are things you have to put up with in order to get the kinds of returns that come with equity investing. It's not always a bed of roses. And, you know, again, if you have money on the sidelines, those names I mentioned, those right. would be things that I would be looking to buy. And, and right. candidly, I already own them. So. Right. As most people would say, what's been abnormal is how complacent the market has been or the lack of volatility. And the so, long stretches with no right? volatility. Exactly. John Buckingham, thank you. Chief Investment Officer at Al Frank Asset Management, editor of the Prudent Speculator Newsletter, uh, joining us on the phone from Laguna Beach, California. And we have bounced around a little bit, Jason, but uh, still, if I look at the equity markets, um, we're still way off our lows of the session. Right. And, you know, it's interesting, you know, hearing from John, I was looking through uh, the latest newsletter and some of his recommendations. And there's some good names in there. Intel was one we didn't get a chance to ask him about uh, that I'm intrigued by. And actually, uh, just on the point of something we were talking about earlier, uh, Verizon uh, as well. You know, Scott Moritz's uh, yeah. sort of sanguinicity, if that's a word, it's not. Sanguinicity. Uh, yeah. Notwithstanding. <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.